Tonight we're going to look at a story that's very familiar. For sake of time, I'm not going to take too long on the story. But I want us to read there in Jonah chapter 1 about a prophet, a servant of God, who when given a command, when given a task, did not surrender. He did not surrender. If I were to ask for a show of hands tonight, and I'm not going to, um, but if I was to ask for a show of hands and say, how many of us here would say, I want to be surrendered to God's will, I believe most, if not all, hands would go up. I believe we all want God's best for our lives. I believe we genuinely want to do, especially as a believer, you have that desire to do exactly what it is that God has asked us to do. My question is, if that's the case, then why aren't most people doing that? Why are those numbers, when you look at this world and those population numbers, why are they still there? I believe it's because of a lack of surrender. I believe that there are obstacles to surrender. If surrender was such an easy thing, we'd all be doing it. We wouldn't even have to think about it. But there are obstacles to surrender. And tonight we're going to look at three quick obstacles. Three obstacles that Jonah allowed into his life that hindered him from fully surrendering to the Lord's will. I'll begin reading in Jonah chapter 1 and verse 1. The Bible says, Now the word of the Lord came unto Jonah the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness is come up before me. I want us all to notice the next two words here. But Jonah. But Jonah. You see, if God wants to accomplish something in my life, and it doesn't get accomplished, it doesn't get performed, it's not God's fault, it's... Mine, but Thomas. But, and you can put your name there in the blank. God wants to accomplish something through Jonah here. In verse 3, But Jonah rose up to flee unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord and went down to Joppa. And he found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare thereof and went down into it to go with them unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this opportunity to open your word and to speak to your people. Lord, anything that comes out of my own mouth and my own <clears throat> my own heart, out of my own mind, Lord, it won't accomplish anything, especially in my power. It won't do anything of spiritual significance. So I ask you, Lord, now to fill me with your spirit. I pray that you would use me to speak to your people. I pray that you would work in our hearts, work in my heart. Help us to surrender to your will and help us not to be hindered by these same obstacles that hindered Jonah. hindered Jonah. Again, Lord, everything that is said and done, may it be to your glory and your praise in Jesus' name. Amen. The first thing I see in Jonah's life that hindered him from surrendering to what God wanted him to do was that he was calloused by fear and bitterness. He was calloused by fear and bitterness. Brother Bowie, why would you use the word callous? I believe callous because when you when you do something a lot with your hands and you get these calluses in your hands, it's or or your a burn is callous. It's when there's so much skin now. You've been injuring that place again and again and again, and now there's just a callus that it numbs you. You're not as sensitive to whatever it is anymore. And Jonah here, the first thing he's callous by is fear. You see, when God calls him to Nineveh, let's put ourselves in his shoes. Many times, you know, this story, I would assume most, if not all of us here know this story. Jonah's called to go to Nineveh. He's called to go there and deliver this message. The Ninevites were very, very wicked people. But the fact that God comes to Jonah and tells Jonah to cry against that city tells me that God cared about those Ninevites. He wanted them to know that judgment was coming. He wanted to give them an opportunity to repent. 
to humble themselves before Almighty God and realize that they had been doing wrong. And even by human, human standards, they were very, very wicked people. Very wicked people. But here Jonah, he's callous by fear. You see, Jonah, we know that, that, that he goes a, a different way. And in fact, uh, again, we won't read it for sake of time, but in the end of chapter 1, one of the things that God really pointed out to me was that as I'm reading this story, we all know that Jonah, he disobeys. He Instead of going to Nineveh, he hops on a ship uh, down at Joppa, going to Tarshish, and he gets down into the hold of that ship, and he falls asleep. God knows where he is, so God sends a storm. Long story short, they find out, Jonah admits the storm is because of him, they cast lots, it's him. He, he tells them about who he is, who his God is, and ultimately he says, if you want the storm to go away, you've got to throw me off the ship, you've got to throw me overboard. And I used to read that and I used to think, you know what, Jonah, you're so kind and self-sacrificing. You realize the only way to get rid of that storm is just to sacrifice yourself. So you told those sailors, you know what, just throw me overboard and the storm will end. I used to think that was a good, pretty good action on Jonah's part. But as you really study this book, as you study Jonah's heart and his personality, especially his attitude, you realize that Jonah would have rather died than deliver that message to the Ninevites. You see, he didn't know that fish was coming. You look at that fish, and yes, God sent it as, 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 a, as a mode of chastisement, of punishment, but God ultimately sent that fish to preserve Jonah's life. Jonah would have drowned there in that storm, in those waters. And as I would ask you to turn your, your attention now to chapter 4, Jonah chapter 4, we see here as well, Jonah... He's afraid, and, and, and right, rightfully so. He, wants, he would rather die than deliver that message to the Ninevites. You see, those people, they were wicked people. Doing my research on the Ninevites, Nineveh was the capital city of Assyria. Assyria had been going around and had been conquering the nation surrounding Israel at that time. Of course, we know from history and from the Bible that God would eventually use the nation of Assyria to take the northern kingdom of Israel into captivity as judgment. But at that time, that had not specifically happened yet. But they had already begun conquering and their reputation was one of viciousness and brutality. In fact, doing my research on that, most of the things the Ninevites did, or excuse me, the, the Assyrians did, I couldn't say from the pulpits, just too graphic, it's too gory. They were wicked people. They wanted to be known by those very adjectives that people feared them for. And so, before we judge Jonah too harshly, before I used to judge Jonah too harshly, I needed to realize, if I put myself in those shoes... There's a lot of things that, where fear, where God's asked me to do, where I've allowed in my life fear to callous me from the need. Jonah didn't see the true need. Hey, God wants to give those people an opportunity to repent. Those are souls that God wants to spare. Oh, but no, I'm afraid of them. I care more about my safety than what's going to happen to them. I care more about what happens to me in this life than what might happen to them in the next life. I'm not going to go to them. I'm not going to surrender to you, Lord. And of course, bitterness as well. In, in Jonah chapter 4, this is after uh, Jonah's already been there. He's got a second chance. He's delivered that message. At the end of chapter 3, God sees their works. He turns away from that judgment that he was going, uh, going to deliver upon them. And in verses 1 to 5, I'll read verse 5. Jonah chapter 4, verse 5. So Jonah went out of the city and sat on the east side of the city and there made him a booth and sat under it in the shadow till he might see what would become of the city. Jonah's already done that. Now he's sitting outside in a little booth that he made himself outside the city and he's sitting there in the hot sun and watching 
the city. Now, when we read Jonah chapter 1, I don't remember God saying, Jonah, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it for their wickedness has come before me. And when you're done, I want you to go outside and sit and watch the city, make yourself a little booth, and sit there in the hot sun. I don't remember God telling him that. So why is Jonah doing this? It's volitional. He's doing it of his own accord. He's doing it because he wants front row seats to the fireworks show. Even though they've repented, he still wants God to destroy them. He's bitter at them. God, please destroy them. I, I, I know they've humbled themselves. I know they've repented. In, in verse 2, it's one of the saddest verses in the Bible because Jonah lists off all the wonderful attributes of God The very reason why we're even here, those wonderful things. God's gracious, He's merciful, He's slow to anger, of great kindness. He's saying all those things in a negative tone. God, you're all these wonderful things. And that's why I didn't want to obey you. Because you're all these things. He's almost accusing God in a bad way of being those things. I'm so thankful that God is merciful. I'm so thankful that God is gracious. But you see, Jonah, those God... It would be a relief to me if you just destroyed those people. I don't want to reach out to those people. That's the whole reason why I went to Tarshish in the first place. I knew that you were going to be gracious to these people. I did not want them to get a second chance. And to bring it closer to home, there's a lot of times where fear calluses us from the true need, doesn't it? The Lord says, hey, I want you to to reach out to this person. They're hard to approach. I, I know you want me to go to this area. Maybe you're calling me to this ministry, but... I don't like speaking in front of people. I don't like this and I don't like that. I'm, I'm afraid of those things. Lord, I know you want me to reach out to this coworker, but you know what? I really don't like him. I've tried to witness him before and he's just been rude to me. He's one of those coworkers, uh, you know, that you just, you don't want to spend time with. Lord, I know you want me to go across the street and give a track to that neighbor, but you know, he lets his dogs get on my lawn and all that. The list goes on and on and on. We cannot be fully surrendered to the Lord when we are calloused by fear and when we are calloused by bitterness. Here, Jonah, he's got a rotten attitude. He's got a heart of unsurrender. He's still not willing to let God have his way with him. He's got that heart of unsurrender. That was his first hindrance to surrender. Secondly, Jonah was comfortable in his service to God. He was comfortable in his service to God. Take your Bibles and turn back with me to the book of 2 Kings. 2 Kings. To give you a bit of background for this passage, we know that uh, the nation of Israel, God had promised them that if they were to depart from his law, from his commandments, that he would bring cursing upon them. He would bring judgment upon them. And more often than not, that came in the form of another nation taking them captive. And in this passage that we're about to read, 2 Kings, excuse me, 2 Kings 14, verse 23, the nation of Syria has come in and has taken Israel captive because of their sin. God has allowed this to happen. And in verse 23, 2 Kings 14, 23, the Bible tells us, In the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria and reigned 40 in one years. And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. He departed not from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. He restored the coast of Israel from the entering of Hamath under the sea of the plain, according to the word of the Lord God of Israel, which he spake by the hand of his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet, which was of Gath-hefer. 
For the Lord saw the affliction of Israel that it was very bitter. For there was not any shut up, nor any left, nor any helper for Israel. So you see the situation here. Israel is under captivity. And verse 26 tells us that the Lord sees the affliction of Israel that it was very bitter. This is not just some run-of-the-mill captivity. This is a bitter affliction. They're suffering. It's their fault. They disobeyed the Lord. They forsaken Him. They got exactly what God had promised them if they had done that. And they're suffering that bitter affliction. But in the midst of that chastisement, in the midst of that judgment upon them, God, through Jonah, delivers a message of encouragement, a message of hope. He tells Jonah, I want to tell your people that, I want you to tell your people that even in the midst of your sin, in the midst of this bitter affliction, I'm going to allow you to reclaim land. I'm going to allow you to restore this land, even though you have a wicked king who does evil in my sight. I'm going to allow you to reclaim some of that land that you've lost. God's proving His mercy to His people, like He always does, like He does in our lives. Now let me ask you, put yourself in the shoes of Jonah. Wouldn't that be an incredible message to be able to give? Your own people, whom you love, are suffering, and God comes to you, and He says, I want you to deliver this message of hope and encouragement. I think all of us here would agree that we enjoy giving good news to people who we love. We love that. I remember when uh, we found out we were expecting. You know, it wasn't like I was like, we have to tell my parents that we're expecting their first grandbaby. I didn't go grudgingly. We were so excited. In fact, we, we wanted to surprise them, but there were so many times where I almost slipped. But it was exciting. I was so thankful for that opportunity and, and, and seeing the joy on their faces when we told them. And, and just, just a wonderful time. We love giving good news to people who we love. So for Jonah, I don't think there would have really been any challenge. There's no signs of hesitation. He was doing God's will, wasn't he? God told him to do something, and he did it. It's great. But now in Jonah chapter 1, instead of people who he loves, his own people, his very kindred, now he's going to a hostile people. People who hate him. People who want to kill him, get rid of him. People who most likely won't want to hear what he's going to say to them. And not just that, he doesn't have a message of good news. He's got a message of judgment. Hey, uh, I know you hate me and all, but I just want to let you know that God's going to destroy you in 40 days. It's not, that's a pretty hard job to do. It's uncomfortable, wouldn't you say? It's uncomfortable. I don't know much from Jonah's life, but I see these two instances. I see Jonah in a place where God's given him a command. No less important. Everything God tells us to do is very important. We need to surrender to whatever it is. He surrenders in this situation. Sure, God, I'll do it. I'll deliver this message. Oh, but God, this is really hard. This, is, this makes me uncomfortable. I'm scared. I hate those people. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. I'll do anything else, Lord. I'll do, it. I'll do it if it's inside my comfort zone. But if it's outside, sorry, Lord, you're going to have to find someone else. I'm not doing it. I'm not going to surrender to that. And in my life, so many times, I, I, I see that played out. And, 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 and I, I look at my life and I realize, but there was a time that I surrendered to the Lord. I said, God, if you want me to be a missionary, sure. And all the young people know from my testimony, when God wanted me to go to Indonesia, I was like, Lord, I'll be a missionary. I'm not going there. I'm not going there. I'll surrender to this. I'll, you know, it's easy to say, Lord, I'll be a missionary before you know where God calls you to go. 
Lord, I'll do this for you. Even before I surrendered to be a missionary, Lord, but I'm doing this. I'm doing this, I'm doing this. I'm on the bus ministry. I'm I'm teaching in Sunday school. I'm doing this, I'm doing this. And by the way, the point of of this is not to try to downplay if you're being a part of any ministry or or faithfully serving in any capacity or another. I commend you for that. Continue to be faithful. But the point of this is, many times we take what we are already doing for God, which is wonderful, and we're using that to justify not doing exactly what it is that God wants us to do. Lord, look at all the stuff that I'm doing here for you. Why are you asking me to do that? We draw lines in the sand. Lord, I'll do this and I'll do this, I'll do this. But I'm not going to do that. That requires me to get uncomfortable for you. That requires me to really trust you. That's going to require some stretching, spiritually speaking, on my part. And we don't like that. I don't like that. But one of my favorite illustrations that really plays this out for me is that of a balance beam. Gymnastics get on this balance beam and, and, and they do a trick. They, they do something to perform in front of judges. And I know the Christian life is not just performance, but for the sake of this illustration, the gymnast, the Christian, is to get on that beam and to do something before the ultimate judge, Jesus Christ. And some Christians, sadly so, they stand and they look at that beam and they say, you know what, I know God saved me, I'm on my way to heaven, but I'm not going to get on the beam. I don't really want to serve Him. I'll just live my own life and I know when I die I'll still go to heaven. I don't believe that most Christians fit into that category. There's a few of those. But most Christians, I believe, fit in the category where they go, you know what? I'll get on the beam. I'll get on the beam. I'll do something for the Lord of my life. But you know what? I'm just going to hug that beam. They get on it and just hug it. Can you imagine watching the Olympics, watching gymnastics, a gymnast gets up on the beam... And then they get off that beam and they stand before the judges and they go, ta-da! You know, you'd be wondering what that gymnast had for breakfast, okay? (laughs) But sometimes that's what Christians do. Lord, I got on the beam. I'm doing good things, am I not? And again, I'm not trying to downplay these things. I'm at church faithfully. I do this and I do this and I do this and I, I even pray God bless all the missionaries in the world. I do all these things Is that not good enough for you, Lord? I'm on the beam. Look at those guys. They didn't even get on the beam. I got on the beam for you. And Christ is saying, yes, you got on the beam for me, but I'm asking more from you. I'm asking you to do something else. I'm asking you to step out by faith and you're using that to justify what you're doing for me. doesn't cut it. In the light of eternity, when I stand before the Lord, I want to hear that, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Not just living my life hugging that balance beam. Jonah was comfortable in his service to God. God, I'll do it if it's easy. I'll do it if I think I can handle it. But if it gets too hard, it's really uncomfortable. I'm not going there. The final thing, and quickly, Jonah cared more about the temporal than the eternal. He cared more about the temporal than the eternal. Let's go back to Jonah chapter 4. Jonah chapter 4. This passage is, of course, especially if you know the story of Jonah, you know, unfortunately, the story doesn't end with the Ninevites repenting and humbling themselves. It doesn't end with revival. But it ends with this. 
We've already read verse 5. We'll begin reading in verse 6. Jonah chapter 4, verse 6. And the Lord prepared a gourd and made it to come up over Jonah, that it might be a shadow over his head to deliver him from his grief. So Jonah was exceeding glad of the gourd. But God prepared a worm when the morning rose the next day, and it smote the gourd that it withered. And it came to pass when the sun did arise that God prepared a vehement east wind and the sun beat upon the head of Jonah that he fainted and wished in himself to die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. So you see the story now. Jonah's out there. Remember, he's only out there because he's so bitter at those people. By the way, on a side note, if you have bitterness in your life, it doesn't destroy the people you're hating. It destroys you. Those Ninevites weren't sitting in the hot sun having a horrible time with the heat beating down upon them and getting the tan of their life. Jonah was. Jonah's out there and he's, he's got his rotten attitude. He wants God to destroy that city. And even in the midst of that, by the way, it's amazing how you, you read this book, you realize how merciful God is. Jonah's having a rotten attitude and even then God allows a gourd to grow up over him. Yeah. A thick leafy plant to shelter him from that hot sun, from that burning wind. And while he's under there, God allows a worm to come. And it destroys that plant. And Jonah, now he's, he's just had it. That, that's it, God. That's the last straw. Take my life. Again, this is the second time he asked for that. God asked him, Are you, do, doest thou well to be angry? Jonah, do you have a right to be angry? He's so angry, look what he says in verse 9. I do well to be angry, even unto death. God, I've got every right to be angry. Man, if I was God at that time, I would have, well, you want to die? I'm willing to grant your request. I'm sick and tired of you. But you know what? God teaches Jonah three quick things. That really, as I look at this, and I think, Jonah, you're absurd. You've been in the sun too long. God teaches him three things, and this is where God really just convicts my heart, because I know I struggle with this. In verse 10, God says to him, uh, the Bible says, Then said the Lord, Thou hast had pity on the gourd, for the which thou hast not labored, neither madest to grow. First, Jonah... I want to point out to you that you did nothing to grow that gourd. Did you dig that hole? Did you put the seed there in that hole? Did you cover it up? Did you water it? Did you, did you nurture that plant? Make sure that, did you tend to it to make sure that it would grow and, and become thick and leafy and green? Did you do that? No. You didn't do a single thing to earn that gourd and to deserve that gourd. Second thing God points out is Jonah. And the second half of verse 10, which came up in a night and perished in a night. Jonah, that gourd was short-lived. It was fleeting. It barely lasted, it barely even lasted a night. Lasted for a day. That's it. Jonah, you didn't do anything for the gourd. It barely lasted that long. But I want you to realize something. I want you to realize what does last long. In fact, it lasts for eternity. Verse 11. And should not I spare Nineveh, that great city, wherein are more than six score thousand persons that cannot discern between their right hand and their left hand and also much cattle? See, uh, six score thousand persons, that's 120,000 people who live there in the city of Nineveh. And that phrase there, cannot discern between their right and their left, that's talking about young children, toddlers. They don't know their right from their left yet. There's 120,000 of them, and Bible scholars use that number to estimate there could have been anywhere from 600,000 to a million people living in the city at that time. You see Jonah here? He gets so mad that he's willing to die because 
he lost his plant. But God, I know there's hundreds, thousands, millions of people in that city, but I want you to destroy them. Save my plant, spare my plant, but destroy those people. I used to look at that and I used to think, Jonah, you're absurd, you're crazy, look at you. What are you doing? And God kind of just turned that back on me and reminded me, how many things are in my life, gourds, that I don't deserve? Things that I never worked or earned. I didn't choose who... I didn't choose to grow up in a Christian home. God in His mercy and grace allowed me to be born to my parents and grow up in a Christian home. I didn't choose who my parents were. I didn't choose what country I wanted to be born in. Both my parents came from communist Vietnam. They had to, they had to endure so much. I could have very well been born there. I could have been born in Indonesia and been taught my whole life that Jesus Christ is not God and that He never died for me. I could have been born in so many places, but God allowed me to be born in Canada where I got to hear the gospel and had the freedom to go to church my entire life and hear the gospel multiple, multiple times. Running water. What did I do to deserve that? Constant electricity. What did I do to deserve that? My health? All these other things, being able to have my family close to me. What did I do to deserve any of that? Nothing. God gave me all that. By His grace. And in the light of eternity, running water and electricity won't matter at all. It's short-lived. It's a temporal comfort. All the little, the joys of being able, hey, if I need something, I can just hop across the street, go to Walmart, being able to grab it. Being able to have my personal space. Being able to have all these other things that if I was to obey God and go somewhere where He'd call me, I wouldn't have it. I'd have to let go of those gourds. All these short-lived things that I love so much and God has to tell me, if you're going to surrender to my will, you've got to let go of those gourds. You've got to care more about the eternal than the temporal. Jonah was the exact opposite. Lord, I like the temporal. It's comfortable. It makes me exceeding glad. But sometimes I have to remember that God maybe takes those away from me to redirect my focus on what is eternal. Well, what's eternal? Verse 11, the souls of men and women, boys and girls. They're going to spend eternity in one of two places. Heaven or hell. That depends on whether or not they hear the gospel. And if God's called me to go and deliver that gospel to them, I'm going to have to let go of some gourds. But the problem is, and the one thing that I know about myself is, I don't like to let go of those gourds. They're comfortable. We like our gourds, don't we? We don't want to go to a, a place or God, you, you might bring me somewhere where I won't have this comfort or this comfort or this comfort. And God is saying, you didn't do anything to deserve those. I gave you those. And by the way, in eternity, they're not going to matter. They're not going to matter. But souls are. Souls are. And if we care more, if I care more about gourds and the things in my life than the souls that God has called me to reach, I'm no better than Jonah. I'm just as wicked and angry and self-centered and unsurrendering. Jonah was callous by bitterness and fear. Jonah... He was comfortable in the service to God. Jonah cared more about the temporal than the eternal. Those obstacles are hard obstacles to overcome, I'll admit. But in conclusion, I'd like to say a little something about one of my favorite missionaries, C.T. Studd. 
Some of you may have heard of him. Some of you may have not. C.T. Studd is one of my favorite missionaries. I love reading missionary biographies. His is one of my favorite. C.T. Studd was a famous cricketer. Okay, it didn't mean he hunted crickets or ate crickets or anything like that. <laughs> Cricket is a sport. All right? But cricket, in, in, in his day, in C.T. Studd's time, cricket was world renowned. It was a global sport. The British Commonwealth, that was one of their, that was one of the sports they, 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 they loved the most. And of course, you know, the British Commonwealth at its apex, at its prime, it, it really had most of the, uh, the land in the world occupied. And so cricket was everywhere. And C.T. Studd, he was incredible at it. He was one of the best batsmen in cricket. Not only was he an incredible athlete, he had his whole future in front of him. He had this great promising career. His parents were very, very wealthy. He had all the, all the money he ever wanted. They left him a huge inheritance. So even if he didn't want to pursue sports, he had a ton of money. Not only that, he got to study at Eaton College. Oh man, prestigious. Very, very high education. All of that he pushed to the side when God called him to be a missionary in Africa. At a time where Africa was very looked down upon. And of course, when C.T. Studs came out and said, Look, you know what? God has, has called me to Africa. That's where I'm going to be a missionary. All these people came out of the woodwork, you know, his family, his friends, all these people. They said, C.T. Studd, hold on, hold on. You're, you're crazy. You're crazy. Why would you give up all of those things? You have power. You have possessions. You have prestige. You have fame. You have a, you have a bright future in front of you, kid. Why would you throw all of that away to go be a missionary? You're sacrificing all of that? Your parents worked hard for that inheritance to give it to you. You're already invested so much time into the sport of cricket. Now you're going to Africa? Why would you sacrifice all of that? And he replied with this quote, and it's one of my favorite quotes. C.T. Studd said to them, to those critics, he said, If Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice is too great for me to make for him. If Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice is too great for me to make for him. You see, I got to hear the gospel thousands and thousands of times. It's not right that I should say, you know what, Lord? I know you gave me so much mercy and so much grace. I know you want me to go to Indonesia. I know you want me to reach those people, but I'm not going to do that. Even though you went all the way for me and you surrendered to the Father's will for me. Jesus Christ... Jonah was calloused by bitterness and fear. Even though we lived as rebels in defiance against God, Christ still loved us. And God, in His perfect will, in His love, sent Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ could have been easily comfortable up there in heaven. I promise you. All those angels worshipping Him, pouring out their adoration to Jesus Christ. The moment he, 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 he beckons to them, at his very will they obey. Yet he came down to win sinful man. Sinful man that was unwilling to obey him. And even for those souls who never accepted the gospel, he still died for them. It's just incredible to me. And then, of course, we know that Jesus did all that because he cared about our eternal souls. So my question to you this night is, I know it. there's obstacles to surrender. And you may be thinking... But it's so hard, I just can't do it. I know God wants me to do such and such a thing. But I can't do it. I can't overcome this. In the Holy Spirit's power, you can. And if Jesus Christ be God, and He is, and He died for you, and He did. So thankful for that. Really? 
is any sacrifice, is any surrender too great for us to make for him.